Thank you for listening to our 2021 season of the Miso TV podcast. Miso TV is a video program adapted to audio only for this podcast, produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, a national 501c3 nonprofit organization. The Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, or Meso Foundation for short, is an organization that provides patient support and education services, funds peer-reviewed research, and advocates for increased funding of mesothelioma research. This 2021 season of programming is made possible with the support of our generous sponsors. They are MRHFM, Bellican Fox, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novacure, Merck, the Gorey Law Firm, and Early Lucarelli, Sweeney, and Meisenkothen. Visit CureMiso.org to learn more about the Miso Foundation and about Miso TV. Today, Berkeley Rose, the nurse navigator from the University of Chicago Medicine, moderates a panel of experts about a new clinical trial evaluating the efficacy of immunotherapy prior to surgery. She talks with surgeons Dr. Joseph Friedberg and Dr. Richard Badafarano, and with medical oncologist and the principal investigator of this trial, Dr. Patrick Ford. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Meso TV. Today we'll be discussing neoadjuvant immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy for receptible malignant pleural mesothelioma. And we have a great panel of experts today to discuss this specific clinical trial. Um, my name is Berkeley Rose. I am the nurse navigator at the University of Chicago for the mesothelioma program, as well as a member of the board of directors for the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. And um, we could do a brief introduction of all of our experts on the panel. Sure. Um, uh, my name is Patrick Ford. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and I'm also a member of the board of the uh, Meso Foundation. Rich Patifrano, I'm um, lead the thoracic surgery division at uh, Johns Hopkins and uh, close collaborator with Patrick on uh, enrolling these patients who are uh, surgically resectable. I'm Joe Friedberg, thoracic surgeon at the University of Maryland. Uh, I'm on the scientific advisory board for the Meso Foundation and uh, also part of the trial. Fantastic, thank you. Um, so Dr. Ford, um, if you could tell us a little bit about the clinical trial, what phase it is in the clinical trial design, um, and maybe a summary of what you've seen thus far in regards to patients and how they're doing. Sure. Um, uh, well, this is a trial building on work we've done in other tumor types, um, looking at giving immunotherapy to patients prior to surgery for, for mesothelioma, um, in particular mesothelioma, where we feel that surgery will play a role in the management, um, resectable mesothelioma. Um, and uh, this came about through conversations with investigators at Hopkins and also at other sites, including Joe Friedberg at the University of Maryland, um, Christian Rolfo over there, and, um, and also with, uh, with Anne So, who leads the mesothelioma program at MD Anderson, and uh, Boris Sepezi, who is the lead thoracic surgeon for meso there. And <clears throat> Rich and I have had a collaboration now for many years in lung cancer in um, treating patients with immunotherapy prior to surgery for lung cancer. And given that we do see, see effectiveness for immunotherapy in, in more advanced mesothelioma or in situations where we don't think surgery would be the primary treatment, we felt it would make sense to move immunotherapy forward in the treatment paradigm. And 
perhaps to treat it at the earliest stage possible uh, before a patient undergoes surgery. And that's what this trial does. Um, to give a little bit of a, a broad outline of what the trial involves. So at the moment, um, we're enrolling to a cohort of patients who will receive um, the anti-PD-1 antibody nivolumab for a period of six weeks prior to surgery. Um, and then they will proceed to surgery with uh, someone like Rich or Joe um, at one of the three sites. And that surgery can be either a, 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 a an extrapleural pneumonectomy or EPP, or it could be a pleurectomy and decortication. And that uh, decision is up to the patient and the surgeon in discussion. And then in the post-operative phase, after the surgery and the patient has recovered, um, there's a discussion regarding chemotherapy for up to four sessions, and then potential radiation therapy, depending on the situation. And after all that treatment is completed, then we restart the immunotherapy for one year of treatment. Um, that sounds intensive, but what I normally recommend to patients is to take it step by step. And we go through all this in detail at the start. And um, we try and enroll uh, people for which this treatment makes the most sense. And it's very much a multidisciplinary uh, um, operation between the surgeon, the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, and the nursing team. Um, to try and uh, try and work with the patient to work out what the best approach for them will be. Fantastic. And then Dr. Friedberg and Dr. Badaferano, in regards to the extended pleurectomy decortication and, and extended pleural pneumonectomy, um, can you talk to us a little bit about that in regards to doing those surgical procedures after immunotherapy versus standard chemotherapy or any specific considerations for this trial while you're in trial? Well, you take it first, Joe, and then I'll give you kind of my experience with the last couple of people here. Sure. So um, I personally, I don't, I think that the, um, the, the impact on surgery is more related to the response um, is sort of been my experience with most of the immunotherapy things. So if a patient and the same with chemotherapy, I was actually a million years ago, part of the, uh, the trial that brought Olympta to the market, where it was preoperative Olympta, which was, I think, the introduction. This must have been in the early 2000s, uh, late 90s. And, um, you know, that, so they got neoadjuvant. I personally, my bias outside of a trial is to do the surgery up front and the systemic therapy afterwards. But uh, I believe, you know, any chance you get to do a trial is the right thing to do, at least for this cancer. And uh, the impact on sort of the technical aspects of the surgery seems to be more related to how robust the response was. So if, if things don't really appear to have changed much, the surgery doesn't change much, the operation is always hard <laughs> no matter what. But um, I, I think that if the patient has a really robust response, uh, there was a patient who um, got treated for over a year and had a near complete response and, you know, that operation took me over 12 hours to, to do, you know, but, um, you know, shy of uh, a really significant response, I think it's about the same as, as usual, it's been my experience. Yeah, one, one of the things that I think has changed, when we were doing extra pneumonectomies, what happened was, is you didn't want to put somebody through a big operation, and then have sort of R1 slash R2 disease at the end of the operation. So, in a sense, we limited that operation to maybe fewer patients. I think when we added the pleurectomy decortication, the perioperative morbidity is less. Um, and I think that that's a good thing for patients because, you know, we were, 
with 2020 hindsight, we were probably shortening some person's lifespan just because of the morbidity of the extra prolonginectomy. Yeah. Say when we first started to do the uh, trial, one thing I noticed was in the old days, we'd said if it got into the endothoracic fascia slash intercostal muscle, or if it was a little bit deeper in the um, uh, diaphragm, you know, they, that used to be out of bounds when you're looking at everybody for an extra pulmonectomy. And I think we've loosened that up when it comes to thinking pleurectomy decortication and, and putting them on clinical trial. I think one of the most important things is it's really the only way, if you give it first, it's really the only way to assess response to therapy. And so I think that uh, with some of our patients, if, if they were coming to me for an extra pneumonectomy off trial, the radiographic findings would have precluded them from going on trial. But I think uh, we've tried to be a little more inclusive, knowing that we're not doing extra pneumonectomy uh, in order to both give these patients an opportunity to get medicines that they wouldn't otherwise get. Uh, that's you know shown good responses, we'll say in stage four disease or in other uh, areas. So, so I think we've been a little more inclusive, but that's also led to a little bit more uh, sort of R1 slash R2 resections in certain areas. Like we've had a couple of patients where, you know, we're so we are taking the adventitial off the aorta, you know, because it was so fused there and things. Uh, and uh, but yet I think the patients on trial and we've learned a lot about the effectiveness of these medicines safety about being able to give them. Uh, so I, I, at least when I was assessing patients to put them on trial, I was a little bit more inclusive um, concerning the radiology, for instance, than I would have been for an extra pneumonectomy off trial. I don't know, Joe, how do you feel like that when you're assessing the patients? Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I haven't done an extra pneumonectomy now. I mean, I, I do them for other cancers like sarcomas, but for meso, I haven't done one probably in Gosh, 15 years, I bet. Right, I right. Do exclusively lung sparing surgery. And um, I don't know. I mean, everybody, the, the problem with this operation is that it's so different from, so, you know, the way Rich does it, the way I do it, the way, I mean, it's not at all standardized, which is one of the things we're working on. That is, I think, the one advantage of an exploromimonectomy. If Rich does that or I do, that's going to be pretty much the same operation. The I lung agree. sparing stuff is, is really pretty variable from surgeon to surgeon to surgeon. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I tend to be fairly liberal with, you know, including patients. Aortic invasion would be an exclusion for me, but I'll actually do, you know, uh, if it's into the chest wall, that will typically not stop me if the patient's otherwise a good candidate. Uh, but that would be someone I would give adjuvant radiation to. We'll do what's called a birdcage procedure where you can take the tumor out and still leave the ribs. That's something that, you know, I'll do. It doesn't come up that often, but uh, I agree with the lung sparing surgery because the patient, it is a safer operation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think, you know, you can offer it to more patients. I mean, to be candid, this, this is not considered, we do with curative intent, but it's not curative. Uh, we're trying to extend patients' lives and they're really for mesothelioma, I think quality of life needs to be on equal footing. And, you know, there is a big difference between, um, you know, having a lung and not having a lung. So, um, you know, I, I personally am more of an advocate of the, um, of the lung sparing surgery, but, you know, I, I don't know. That's just in my hands. It, it works better. You know, I think the patients have better quality of life and they seem to live longer than when I was doing pneumonectomies. I did, within our own group back 
when I was at Penn, you know, I switched over doing the two and compared them. And um, not only did the patients sort of have a better quality of life, and again, these are typically, you know, geriatric patients because of the latency period between asbestos exposure and when they get the cancer. So, um, you know, I think that uh, um, the lung sparing surgery probably is, you know, like Rich said, it allows you to be a little more liberal with, who, you know, who you would include for this because it is really, you know, arguably the biggest palliative operation that, that, that we do. I agree. And with that being said, have you seen any difference in regards to the post-operative recovery for these patients? Yeah, I mean, it's apples and oranges compared to a pneumonectomy, for instance, because the physiology is so dramatically different. I think that air leak, so sometimes the patient will have some air leaks, but even that seems to be well controlled. Um, in general, the length of stay is shorter for a pleurectomy decortication than for an extrapolar pneumonectomy. Um, because when we do extra pleural pneumonectomies, oftentimes the, the pleural space will fill up too quickly with fluid and we kind of get some of that uh, tension physiology. Then we have to you know, decompress it with needles and things like that. So I just think the whole postoperative course, uh, the ICU stay is shorter. Um, they're more likely to go home within seven days than after an extra pleural pneumonectomy. I don't know, Joe, has that been your experience too? Um, yeah, again, it's been so long since I've done the pneumonectomies, but um... And Berkeley, I think you're asking specifically with respect to the immunotherapy. Does that impact? Oh, sorry, yeah. So I have, I have, you know, we this is a pretty new trial. I have very limited, you know, experience with that. But again, we're, you know, so at this point, anything is going to be anecdotal. Now, I have taken care of patients who have had immunotherapy outside of the trial preoperatively, and you know, progressed or whatever, and uh, I have not noticed a difference. Um, and then with respect to what Rich was saying, the, the technical aspects of it, um, I think most of these patients were not for the air leaks would probably be out of the hospital significantly quicker than the, yes. than the pneumonectomy patients would, because it is, like you said, that you have two lungs, the physiologic impact is, is so much less. Uh, but I think for the, you know, till the patients heal their air leaks, you know, I think in my experience, most of the time, if it weren't for the air leaks, the patient would probably be ready to go in about a week. But with the air leaks, yeah. it's usually closer to two weeks. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. And then, yeah. Doctor. Oh, and then, Doctor Ford. In regards to adverse events, you know, such as pneumonitis, transaminitis, colitis, have you seen any of that delay surgery or happen after surgery, uh, more or less, or what have you seen thus far in regards to that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting, Bertie, in that I think um, on average, I would say for their age, patients um, with mesothelioma tend to be a little bit healthier, say, than lung cancer patients of the same age. Um, so we haven't actually seen um, all of the patients so far. I think we've enrolled seven patients have been through the, the surgery phase, and they've all gone to surgery on time uh, without any disease from toxicity. And um all but one patient had a had an episode of, of potential pneumonitis. However, I, I, it may or been, um, it may or may not have been a postoperative complication, but that patient also recovered. So so far, we've been uh, pretty um, happy with the tolerability of the regimen. Um, the and we're in follow up, kind of in the postoperative phase for those patients, and they're all doing pretty well. Um, the uh, the kind of so I think as Rich and, and uh, Joe said, there has been 
the main experience in terms of chest surgery for neoadjuvant therapy has really been in lung cancer where we have kind of four or five studies now of neoadjuvant immunotherapy for patients with lung cancer. And um, they've been pretty variable in terms of the effect on the surgery. And we'll see more data. There's a study being presented at the AACR meeting next month on a randomized phase three trial of neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy in lung cancer. So I think it'll be interesting to look at those data. But my sense is that um, we're not seeing dramatic differences um, between, say, giving immunotherapy with chemo or single agent immunotherapy in terms of the impact on surgery. Um, and then in, in the, at the recovery phase, really, I haven't, um, I followed most of these patients at Hopkins and we haven't seen anything too, too unexpected uh, than you would with a normal uh, pleurectomy decortication. I think, I think all of the patients so far have had pleurectomy decortications, um, but we haven't seen anything unusual for those patients so far. Patrick, how about radiation? Do you, do you have more concerns about radiation with immunotherapy? Mm -hmm. it's a, yeah, it's a good it's a good point, Joe. We've been so so what we've done we haven't mandated in the protocol, but we've been prioritizing um, proton radiation for these patients to try and minimize the exposure because most of them had pleurectomies and decortications. Um, so to try and minimize the exposure of the normal lung of the intact lung to radiation. Um, so I think we have. Um, probably two patients so far are in the radiation phase because that comes after the chemo um, and they have they have tolerated that so far um, the I think otherwise it's it's, it's um, I think it is a concern so one of the differences with EPP as you know versus pleurectomy is that you have the intact lung if you have the pleurectomy procedure the less the, the less intensive surgery and one concern about giving radiation to a patient who has an intact lung is the risk of radiation pneumonitis. Um, thankfully, we, we have not seen that as yet. Uh, it's early days, but we hope that perhaps the use of, of protons will, will help reduce that risk, you know. So, and one of the things, Patrick, in the, in the trial that we looked at together in, uh, with the group of Memorial, we were comparing patients who normally would have gone right to surgery and compared that to people that got immunotherapy instead of having an 80%, you know, minimally invasive resection rate, it was more like 40%. But when you're talking about mesothelioma. Rich, that's the lung cancer? It's a hard that's operation. the lung cancer patients? Yeah, then the lung cancer patients. Right, right. So that comparison where we saw a big difference in the diff degree of difficulty of the operation, right. really a very different comparison because you're talking about people who would have gone straight to surgery versus people that um, had preoperative therapy. But when you're talking about, if you take a mesothelioma patient right to surgery, that's still a tedious, hard operation. And so I think, you know, I do a lot of esophageal cancer operations. And so when you talk about people who get preoperative therapy, um, we, we have a clinical trial in which we were getting chemo, people would get chemo RADs, but we incorporated immunotherapy into the preoperative chemo RADs. I couldn't tell the difference from an operative management or a postoperative complication rate essentially with that. So I think, you know, again, it depends on what the comparison arm is, but when you're talking about a difficult pleurectomy decortication, if you take them straight to surgery versus a seemingly similarly a difficult, I can't tell a difference in this particular. Yeah, yeah. Berkeley, I think the short answer is we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you're doing the trial, right? <laughs> yeah, I think we don't, but I, I don't think it, it precludes 
accomplishing. It, it may make our day a little longer, but I don't think it precludes the ability to do the operation or to do as good an operation is, is my sense. I would agree, yeah. Great. <clears throat> and it sounds like adverse events have been pretty minimal from what Dr. Ford said as well, um, post-operatively and in the maintenance portion with the nivolumab. Yeah, it's early days, as I said, we're, we're about halfway through that first arm of nivolumab, um, but to date we haven't seen anything unusual, you know, and there is a fairly extensive experience at this point from, um, from lung cancer with this treatment and it's, it's, there haven't been any unusual kind of adverse events or anything you would not have expected to happen uh, with PDMAB mm -hmm. or with PD-1 on its own. Um, there, uh, so I think we're reasonably confident with this um, arm and then we'll be moving on to the, uh, uh, the combination arm of two immunotherapy medicines would be the next part of the trial once we complete enrollment to this first part. Mm -hmm. um, and there are data for that combination arm in mesothelioma um, for patients with unresectable where it's not amenable to surgery. Um, so that combination is combining ipilimumab, which is another immunotherapy medicine with anavolumab and giving them together over the same time period for six weeks before surgery and then having surgery and the same schedule afterwards, essentially chemo, then radiation, and then a year of the ipilimumab and nivolumab afterwards. Got it. And then the million-dollar question probably right now, um, as we're still in a pandemic in regards to COVID-19, has that impacted enrollment? Um, and in regards to if a patient has had COVID or if they're vaccinated, what are those considerations for enrolling in this clinical trial? So, yeah, so I think Rich and, um, uh, and Joe can comment in a minute maybe on the surgical aspects related to COVID, the impact at the moment, uh, maybe the way it was and the way it is now. But... From the trial point of view, we were definitely slowed down kind of last uh, March, April, May. Um, but for the last four or five months, we've been more or less back to normal in terms of accrual and, and offering trials to patients. Um, and in terms of the COVID vaccine, we, uh, we recommend patients get the COVID vaccine unless there's, there are very rare reasons for, uh, for, for a tiny proportion of patients who would not get the vaccine. But the vast, vast majority of patients, we recommend it strongly. And um, especially for patients with cancer in general, they're at much higher risk of complications from COVID than the general population. Um, so, uh, so if you're able to access the COVID vaccine, I would strongly recommend patients do so. The, the testing is real. I mean, the hospitals really have it down to an art form at this point, <laughs> trial by fire. So, I mean, it is, it is safe, um, but the, I mean, we, you know, everyone's still plenty concerned. You know, everyone's wearing a mask in the hospital, and you know, when the patients come in, it's it's it really is pretty strict. Yeah, no, I think the hospital aspect is probably safer than the grocery right. store. And <laughs> the challenge with it is, is yeah. that honestly, you know, because we for a period of time we didn't have visitors, and it was pretty strict, right. and everybody was, you know, patients, providers, we were all very committed. I. I I think the challenge with it is, is that when they go back at day seven to 10, if they were to get COVID on day, post-op day number 21, they would struggle with it. And so what we've done is sort of educate the families and uh, right. that to say, okay, look, we're, we're pretty confident that we can protect you in the hospital because we have had very, very little patient to provider transmission of COVID and uh, provider to patient COVID transmission. But I think the vulnerable time is, sort of week four, you know, day 14 through day, you know, we'll say 35, you know, 42, where if they were to get it, 
you know, three weeks after surgery, back in their own home, back in their own communities, uh, that's probably their most vulnerable. But once you have that conversation with them in the office, they said, don't worry, doc, we're not going out. And we're yeah. our groceries and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, any patient that goes on a clinical trial is motivated. And all they're asking for us is to give them the relevant information to help make good decisions. The only other thing I thought was difficult for patients was um, the thought of having their loved one in the hospital for seven to 10 days, yes. allowing any patients. That was, a, that, I think that was problematic um, just for patients to decide to get care at that time. I don't think it really necessarily right. the clinical trial, yes or no. It was more, you know, I, I think I'm going to put off all this care until my, I know I can have uh, patient loved ones. Right. And I say Johns Hopkins was very strict, stricter than some of the hospitals, even in our own Baltimore region. Um, and it was a, a little bit of a problem in that regard. Yeah, we have, we have visitors now, but, you know, I had patients who needed big cancer operations, um, during sort of the height of the thing and families can come. And I, you know, I think they suffered as a result of it. You know, a lot of, you know, again, a lot of the patients are older and they're really, you know, they've had a spouse for decades or, you know, they get their kids who they're used to seeing a lot. And so thankfully it's, it's, it's better now, you know, mm -hmm. families can visit, but that, that was rough for sure. That was, the, I think that was the toughest time. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Really sad. Patients were like coming out, into the parking lot, you know, signs and, you know, and they were doing FaceTime on their iPads and stuff, but, you know, there's no substitute for having the family really there, especially when you're going through such a, a big, big operation. But the reassuring thing is, you know, we're still able to enroll patients in trials like this um, and that things are still moving forward in research. So that is reassuring. I think for the whole mesothelioma community and for all of us caring for patients. So that's wonderful. Um, so thank you all for your time. I think this was a fantastic discussion and very thorough and really gives patients and um, anyone interested in enrolling in the trial a great idea of what to expect um, and the outcomes that we've saw seen thus far. So thank you for your time. Great. Well, thanks thank for having you. Us. Thank you, Bertie. Thank you. Very all right. Much.